Welcome to another episode of the Rosen Podcast. I'm Chloe, your host, and can you believe we've made it to episode number 20? What a milestone. Um, I would like to mark this important milestone by thanking some super important people. First off, Lindsay. Now, Lindsay looks after the guests, she finds guests, she gets guests booked in to record this podcast, and she answers all their questions ahead of um, jumping on the call with me to record. Now, without Lindsay doing that, this podcast would not have made it past episode three because I just, I just couldn't get to it all. So a huge thank you to Lindsay. The podcast literally would not exist if she hadn't done so much work, um, so much unsung work most of the time to get it all sorted. So a huge thank you to you, Lindsay. I'd also like to thank all our guests because this is an interview podcast. So if there weren't any guests... I'd have nothing to talk to you about. It would be a very boring, very short show. So huge thanks to everyone who's made the time to come on and record. Uh, to the RSPG group, the Rosen Surgery Patients group, if you guys didn't let us post the episode in your Facebook group every week, then we wouldn't have spread the word to so many people and we wouldn't be helping people, which is the whole point of this podcast is to help people. And finally, to you lot for listening, because as I said, the whole point of this show is to create something to help us feel more connected and make us feel less alone. And if none of you were listening, there really would be no point at all. So thank you very much for tuning in. In today's episode, I'm chatting to Kathy Manlove about her career in forensic science. Now, if this is your first episode that you're listening to, then wow, you've got 19 you can go back and, and check out. And you can find them all at rosenpodcast.com. They're also all on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and on other podcast apps. You just need to search for Rosen Podcast and you'll find us. At rosenpodcast.com as well, you'll find links to any of the resources we mention, which we do occasionally in some shows. Today's interview fits into our chat with people with interesting careers who live on the Roseland category of episodes, and it's a fascinating one. Hi, Cathy. Hello, Chloe. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, because we're talking about something quite fascinating today. Um, but let's start off with how did you get into the world of forensics? Crikey. Well, um, I've always loved biology. I loved science at school um, and I knew I wanted to do something in science. So I went away and obviously had to leave Cornwall in those days to go and do a biology degree. Um, I went to Portsmouth. I thought that was a nice soft touch after living by the sea here um, and I had a great, great three years doing my biology degree. And just towards the end of it, we had to start thinking about what we wanted to do for a career. Um, and I basically decided that I didn't want to be a lab rat. I wanted something a bit more out there. Um, and I had always had an interest in sort of um, crime novels, I suppose. I was a mad fan of Patricia Cornwell at the time. So um, I just intrigued me as a subject. So I just thought, uh, what the heck, I'll apply to do a master's degree in it. And um, lo and behold, I got a place, which I didn't realise was quite hard to do at the time. I was just very lucky, I think. Um, so then I headed off to Glasgow and did a whole year of forensic study up there, um, which involved working for back in Portsmouth for the police force for a year. So, yeah, it was... It was a good choice for me. It, no day was ever the same, um, and that suits my personality, really. It's quite crazy, isn't it, how, um, as I think, I suppose kids do it now, though we do hear that kids are more intelligent than we were back then. But um, <laughs> but how we kind of go for a degree, and you get to the third year, and you're like, oh, a job. <laughs> what, what do I actually want to do for a job at yeah, the end of all it, of this? It is a really tricky decision to make. Um, I mean, I fear for the kids coming out these days, obviously, because they're in a very tricky situation. Um, but at the time, it was before forensics was like a buzzword. There was only two places you could do a, a specific degree in it. 
um, these days, there's something like 230 courses that have forensics in the title. Wow. Um, it's become a really popular way of getting kids into science. Um, sadly, I don't think there's probably that many jobs out there. Um, but it's, it gets, sets you up really well for a career in any science, really. So it makes you have a really keen mind to, uh, it's a very good applied science. And when you said about biology, weirdly, I knew, I knew forensics was scientific, but it hadn't occurred to me that biology was the key science. I don't know why. Yeah, this is a myth presented by the, the media, really. So if you look at any television programmes involving forensics, they just forensicate stuff. And what you don't realise is that actually forensic science is still split down into all the scientific disciplines. So um, they, they come across in an applied nature, but they do cover all the sort of chemistry, physics. Um, I'm just getting lost now. Biology, you know, all the basic sciences are covered in forensic. It just depends on how it's applied to a forensic discipline. Wow. So so you could go um, chemistry to forensics, physics to, to forensics and biology to forensics absolutely so um i mean to take an example if you look, think about toxicology and um, that would probably involve chemistry a bit of biology so a biochemistry degree would be ideal for that because they're looking at you know toxins and stuff that are in the body um in in body fluids and and also so drugs is very much chemistry based but again they have a little bit of biology thrown in there because they're looking again at, at some the, the pure substances but also different ways that it might affect the body so yeah, that that's just one example that I could, I could go on forever about the different disciplines within forensics, really. And I, I guess when you first got into forensics, as you said, I mean, you mentioned Patricia Cornwell. That was pretty much the only book at that time or the only piece of media at that time that was really focusing on forensics. It wasn't really part of the, the public consciousness. You know, nowadays you can't turn on the TV without... You know, I think every second of the day, there's at least one cop show that's highly focused on forensics on, yeah. on a channel on Freeview somewhere. We, we did have them. I mean, I was a big fan of Quincy when I was a student, which is, um, you <laughs> can still too. see it sometimes now on an old rerun. But um, he was actually a medical examiner. So, again, that's a slightly different discipline. So they would use forensics on the show. But in reality, that would be it's a very cut and dry between the two disciplines. So. As a, as a forensic scientist, I, I did work on the, at the sharp end a lot. I was seen going for many years, um, and I did attend post-mortems and act in a forensic capacity there. But we worked alongside the doctors, the pathologists. We didn't ever step in there onto their toes, and they didn't step onto ours. So they're very clearly defined disciplines. And I suppose, uh, you know, given the, the, the change in public consciousness of forensics over that time span, that must have also, you know, that, that kind of mirrors the growth of the the sector, I suppose, and the importance of it to the world of crime. So you must have seen a lot of changes over your 20 years in, in the world of forensics. Um, yeah, well, my first job, actually, when I first graduated, I was I was a data analyst for the um, DNA database. So when I joined, which is what, in 98, I think, they were just getting all the prisoners onto the DNA database. So I spent my days number crunching. It was a very boring job. <laughs> um, but it was a mass influx of DNA samples to sit on this national database, which is still going now. Um, so there was an awful lot of money ploughed into DNA, which is as it should be. You know, it's a, it's a really good way of identifying people. Um, but as I, as I got into, I used to work for Forensic Science Service, which at the time was the only place to work. It was owned by the Home Office. Um, and as I got into the job, I realised that DNA wasn't really for me. I wanted to do something a bit more involved. And also, again, it was sitting in a lab working, which I wasn't really happy with. Mm -hmm. So I was very privileged and ended up working in something called the Serious Crimes Unit. And we actually used to use lots of different disciplines to go in and, and um, solve, solve really you know, high-profile murder cases, really. 
Um, so I, I kind of stepped away from the well-known fingerprints and DNA, but the Serious Crimes Unit was focused on fingerprints, but in a slightly different way. So most police forces do most of their own fingerprint work. They have scenes of crime officers um, that go in, and people that's what people think of when they think of crime scenes. They've got their brushes, and they're finding fingerprints and recovering them and then putting them onto the fingerprint database. Um, but that's all controlled by the police, actually. Um, so my unit was using the cut-above stuff, usually lots and lots of buckets of chemicals um, to find fingerprints that you couldn't just find through powdering. Um, so we were very keen on turning things purple by the end of the time with us, um, staining with lots of chemicals. But because it was quite specialist bespoke work, um, we only really did it on high-profile cases um, and uh, lots of counter-terrorism work. Wow. So once, so so, I guess you, in some ways we kind of think of as fingerprints of being continuing the TV metaphors here, the age of Columbo, um, you know, and and way back into Victorian times and all the rest of it. But actually, fingerprints are still very cutting edge now. In that case, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, with all forensics, all the police really want to know is is our suspect the person that was involved, and you can only really get a definitive answer from DNA and fingerprints. Um, there are an awful lot of other forensic disciplines that look at um, different types of evidence which won't actually put your person there as a single individual. So to give an example, another area that I, I'm basically a marks and traces expert. If you asked another forensic scientist, that's what they'd say I did. Um, so it wasn't just finger marks. I used to do a lot of work with footwear. Um, so you have to sort of ask yourself, can finding someone's footwear mark in a crime scene actually identify that one individual um, and it actually, in some cases, you can identify a specific shoe. You can't say he was wearing it at the time, mm -hmm. um, which is a whole different kettle of fish, really. Um, but it is possible to get answers like that, but it's rarer. It's not as easy as DNA and fingerprints. They're a really good identifier. So you think it's marks and... <laughs> marks and traces. Marks and so traces. It's obviously finger marks and footwear marks mainly. Um, I did have a quite a good special. I don't. I don't actually do this work anymore. Obviously, I've I've semi-retired down to Cornwall, um, but I used to be quite a specialist in looking at skin transfer. So that was leaving. So you have to bear with me to, to explain. That's cool. But basically, if somebody if somebody kicks somebody in an assault, um, they are actually capable of retaining a footwear mark on the inside of the victim's clothing from the shoe that kicked them because you get a transfer of skin. So again, that ties up with using my marks and traces ability, but also the chemicals to identify the, the mark in the first place. So it was quite a diverse discipline, really, and they would send us into all sorts of funny things. We were the department that if nobody knew what to do forensically, they'd speak to us and we usually find a solution for them. It, it sounds like it was a bit of a continuous logic puzzle where you're going, right, if this had happened, where might there have been a mark? What might it have been made of? And therefore, how could we reverse engineer discovering it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people in my area of um, forensics tend to be really good at pattern recognition. Um, so I'd regularly get called into um, a biologist doing a general body fluids exam on some car garments. Um, they would ask us to come in and look, and we'd, we'd find telltale signs in the patterns on the that had been left. To most people, it'd just look a lo load of dirt, maybe. Um, but we sort of had a, a better mind for spotting the patterns and thinking, actually, no, there's more to that. Let's do a bit more work on it. So it's a really interesting job. Um, but in the early days, I did do a lot of biology work as well. Uh, obviously, I had a biology degree, and that was more mundane work. I spent um, two weeks putting together a broken glass window once, reconstructing it, um, which was just mind-blowingly boring. But, you know, that's the sort of work you do. It's painstaking. It's intricate in the early days before you get lo let loose on your own cases, really. Wow. So a whole window pane from 
shattered pieces back together yeah because we had to put it back together to decide who was inside the window who was outside what the blood spatter on the window could tell you about the incident and how it had happened um you know were there any marks on it were there finger marks anywhere and just try and because obviously when you have an incident happen you get people talking about what happened in witness statements and we have to then take that information from the witness statements and see if the forensic information sort of marries up with what they're saying and try and give an idea of who's more truthful. Wow, so so literally taking all those pieces, putting it back together without damaging the evidence and then uh, trying to get fingerprints off it afterwards. Absolutely. Oh, You'd be amazed you. what time, times I've spent putting things back together and also deconstructing things. So I mentioned I did a lot of counterterrorism work. You know, a lot of that was very, very boring, um, pulling apart bits of tape because they like using parcel tape in lots of things. Um, and it was painstaking pulling apart parcel tape. I'm sure you can imagine what that was like. Mm. Sticky, a little bit like cling film, but even stickier. Yeah, and I guess the the interesting thing about that is it's kind of like the areas where the, the criminal wouldn't have thought they'd be leaving evidence. You know, you smash yeah. a, you, a smashed window. You're like, well, it's just a smashed window. We've We've destroyed evidence now. We can get out of here. Or it's just the parcel tape. No one's going to look at that. But actually, mm. both are quite crucial. It, the main principle behind um, all forensic work it was um, defined by a man called Locard, and then um, it's a um, every contact leads to trace, and it's the same information that goes all the way through all forensic disciplines. Basically, if something's happened, then forensically you should be able to find it. But the word forensic actually means um, to apply something to a point of law. Um, so the, the word forensic is used a lot these days. You hear about forensic accountants. Um, it, it's really looking at something in finite detail and using that information in the court of law. Okay, well, Kathy, I think that's a good note on which to, to round off. So thank you so much. That's been absolutely fascinating. We may Maybe we've even inspired a couple of listeners to, uh, to focus in on their science degrees and then follow your footsteps into the world of was it world of uh, forensics so kathy thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about it. it's been absolutely you're, fascinating you're very welcome now if you'd like to find out about some of the other interesting careers people living on the peninsula have then check out one of these episodes we've got episode four we'll be chatting with suze hext who's a paralympian Episode 5, we're chatting to Simon Rowell, who's a sports meteorologist. And episode 10 is with Ivor Bowditch talking about his career in China Clay. Now, Lindsay and I are always looking out for more people to interview, whether you, you, know, you have an interesting career and you live here or you're part of a group that's usually active on the peninsula or there's something else you want to talk about that's in some way related. We are interested in talking to you. The first step is to drop us an email to rosenpodcast at gmail.com. Send us what you'd like to talk about. And Lindsay will get back to you and um, do everything that needs to be done to make you feel comfortable and ready to record. As I said, she's an absolute wonder. Um, everything we do is recorded in, in advance. Nothing goes out live. So you've got, you know, it's a nice, relaxed recording session. And you don't even have to be willing to come on the show. If you've got something that you want to record at home and send us in, awesome very happy to have you do that or if you've got like a story or a poem or a recipe you can send it to us and we'll read it out for you thanks all of you for being a part of the podcast up to and hopefully beyond as well episode 20 it it means a lot to both me and Lindsay that it's still going and that you're all still tuning in it's um it's brilliant um so be kind and stay safe